You're listening to the Lucas Askew Experience. Now, here's your host, the one and only, Lucas Askew. Hello, world. Welcome to the Lucas Askew Experience. As customary with these episodes, I usually say a quick blurb, give some love with a thorough and loving sponsor read, and then jump into the main discussion. Today's episode, no sponsor. Sometimes the old CPM cost is a little too much for a brand or company to take on. That's fine by me. We have other ways to pay the bills here at the LAE. Devoid of a a sponsor today, um, as we continue down and as we continue to wind down the farewell season and the farewell tour of the LAE, it became clear that I, I needed to do an episode that spoke to one of the true fabrics of my being. As you've gotten to know me over the, the past two seasons, you've learned what I like and what I particularly don't care for. And with the tennis season starting back up, it was only fitting to devote this episode of the LAE to the one person who has made tennis my favorite sport, not just to watch, but to play as well. So let's dive into this smashing good episode and allow me to serve you up some riveting LAE content right after this break. Welcome back to the Lucas Askew Experience. The term idle can have a very negative connotation. It is something or someone that people can worship. It has a religious connection, but as we've seen the fabric of earthly culture and earthly society, human beings have become the idols that we look at. I know I'm painting a very negative light to the term, but what I want to convey is that there are some people, there are some human beings that can genuinely live up to the billing of idol. And I'm dedicating an entire episode of the LAE to someone that has clearly and certainly lived up to the expectations in my eyes. As the name would allude to in the podcast episode, today we are talking all about the Swiss maestro, the Fed Express, and in my eyes, the unquestioned greatest tennis player of all time, Mr. Roger Federer. Now, we're on the farewell tour of the LAE, and I felt it was important to highlight a person that has been such a fabric of my life and my existence, Roger Federer. Raj. Now, Roger was born on August 8th, 1981 in Basel, Switzerland. Yes, Switzerland, the land of the Alps, watches, chocolate, and great tennis facilities. But I'm not going to read you... Roger's biography from Wikipedia. That's not what the episode is going to be about. Even though it would be entertaining to me, I want to highlight a few things about Roger, weigh in on the greatest of all time or the GOAT debate, and walk you through some of his 20, yes, 20 Grand Slam singles titles. First, what makes Roger Federer so special? Like many top athletes, Roger has been blessed with the natural talent. He's, he has incredible hand-eye coordination, which does help when you're playing a game like tennis. You see, Raj, he played multiple sports growing up, in addition to tennis, which he says has helped him develop his all-around skills. And I am a huge proponent of that. I think too often in at least American, but 
Same thing with uh, Canadian sports societies. We want to specialize our youth at an early age. We want them to become the greatest tennis player or greatest baseball player. So when they're six or seven or eight or nine, we want to push them into that one path, go to all the practices, go on the traveling teams. And yes, you may have the Tiger Woods of, of your family where you put them into golf when they're two years of age and they become a, a world-class golfer. But I think it's important for the development of youth, development of just children in general, that you allow them to experience multiple sports because I think utilizing those additional sports not just helps them from a interaction and the personal the dynamics that go along with multiple team sports, but as Roger is evident, it can actually help you in your overall game because you're working new muscles and you're also not getting burnt out at a young age because let's be honest, playing tennis is fun, but playing tennis eight hours every single day, since you're six or seven, that could get a little wearing. Getting back to Roger here uh, and kind of what makes him so special from a technical standpoint, he's got a great forehand, the one-handed backhand that is absolutely pure and a lethal serve. I think some of the things that are less talked about are just his, his fitness level, his activity. And one stat particularly that, that really jumped out at me um, in 2015. So it wasn't one of his uh, greatest uh, years, just in, in terms of overall Grand Slam titles. But in 2015, in the four Grand Slam events, he averaged 9.7 meters per point. I know that that doesn't necessarily mean much to a lot of people. Um, but if you look at the Novak Djokovic's of the world, Rafael Nadal, they're expending almost twice that amount of distance uh, per point. It, it shows that he's conserving his energy and this has actually helped him extend his career because he's, he's smart, he's crafty, he, he knows when to uh, make bursts but also realize when to pull back. And sometimes you have to give, give points up uh, in order to save yourself for the long term. But ultimately, I think what truly sets Roger apart we actually have to go back to, to 2002 when Roger Federer was only 20 years old. He had the talent, had the gifts, and people were, were saying he could become something. Uh, he had turned pro just a couple years prior, but people felt that he was a little lazy on the court and sometimes could be a little bit of a hothead. He just couldn't control his emotions. And looking back at some of his, his old practices uh, during this time and, and his early rounds, I would agree. These, these, like if you were a tennis commentator or a tennis aficionado in the early 2000s, I would agree with that sentiment. Then in 2002, strat tragedy struck when his longtime coach and friend, Peter Walker, was killed in a car crash. Roger even said this in some autobiography material. This changed his perspective. And you saw him become mentally stronger and appreciate things a little bit more. For all the, the great physical attributes, uh, it wasn't until this his mind, the mental game, um, became a strength that allowed him to propel his career and became his greatest asset that allowed him to put all the all the pieces together uh, and become the dominant player that he is. 
and you see it time and time again. Uh, tragedy is is not fun. No, no one no one likes tr- tragic events. Um, they can have a very detrimental impact on one's life. Uh, but you see with some some of the greatest athletes, some of the greatest individuals, uh, they use tragedy uh, to help fuel them and also teach them the meaning of life and understanding how precious it is. And that if you want to become great at something, uh, there's, there's steps in order to do that. Ultimately, when you look at Roger Federer, has the, the elements of uh, just natural ability that has been given to him. But at 2002, this tragic event uh, really became the TSN turning point in his career, uh, which we'll, we'll get into uh, here, here in a little bit. As we talk through Roger Federer's uh, illustrious career, um, I just want to take, take a, a walk down memory lane here um, because I'll give you some, some stats of, of what Roger has accomplished uh, throughout his 20-year yes, career of playing professional tennis. 20 years, 20 Grand Slam titles. Not too bad. One uh, averaging one a year. 103 single tour titles. This is second all-time to the great Jimmy Connors of 109. Will Roger pass that? Eh, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Roger, six ATP tour titles. 28 Masters event titles. 129 million in career earnings. That's impressive. But what also is impressive, making over $106 million this past year in non-tennis career earnings. So the sponsorships with Uniglow, Rolex, really anything uh, that, that Roger touches turns to gold. So career earnings is great, but then making $106 million in one year, being named Forbes' richest athlete of this past year, not too shabby. Some more, some more stats here. Overall, an 82% winning percentage. Holds serve 89% of the time. Been ranked number one for 310 weeks and 46 semifinal appearances. So what I shared with you is either number one or number two in these various stats. And obviously, longevity helps uh, having a 20-year career. Um, but ultimately, it's it was the, the dominance uh, year after year um, that has really allowed him, um, and in my mind, has been one of the reasons why I, I, I follow him so so readily, that it has been 20 years of me following tennis. Uh, when I was a, a wee lad, I, I liked to play tennis. Uh, I played growing up um, and into into high school, and it was really the grace and the, the beauty that, uh, that Roger provided to the game, that Yes, in the, in the early years, he was a little bit of a hothead and kind of, I, I didn't necessarily love that about him. Um, but as you saw in 2002 and then ultimately 2003, when his his career skyrocketed, winning his first Grand Slam title, the turning point and, and when I started to, to really like tennis, to, to really love tennis and being the, the number one sport in my life. You might be asking yourself, we are really diving deep and spending this in, in entire episode on Roger Federer. Yes, the answer is yes. It is the uh, the Lucas Ask experience for a reason. And uh, this is a huge part of my experience. Uh, so Roger Federer, I have uh, had the pleasure of actually seeing play live uh, three times in my life. 
So the, the first time was in 2015 in beautiful Melbourne, Australia. It was as part of the, the Australian Open. That was actually my first international trip. I think I've mentioned this on the pod before, uh, but my good friends, uh, Tim Ryan and uh, Kelsey Philpott were alongside me for our Willamaloo boys trip uh, to to the great outback. And the Australian Open was was at the, the top of my list of going to see a live tennis match. And after watching Jeannie Bouchard play the Canadian tennis prodigy, we saw on Rod Labor Court, the main court, Roger Federer play Andreas Seppi. This was a third round match. And, and again, I was just excited to be there. The, the energy, the excitement. Um, we were near the top of, of Rod Laver Arena, uh, but I didn't care. Uh, I, was, I was there with, with my boy Raj. And unfortunately, it was a four set defeat to, uh, to the Italian Seppi, who played well that day, but candidly 2015 wasn't a great year for for Roger Federer just in terms of his uh his career trajectory he lost and I was I was a little def- devastated I'm not gonna lie I was uh you can you can ask Tim Ryan uh he was I was definitely sulking a little bit for the rest of the day but just seeing seeing him live um and, and witnessing that experience and before the actual match uh, I actually camped out in the the practice arena and spent over an hour and a half just watching, just watching Roger practice. Now, I I could have walked around the entire tennis facility and saw live matches going on and really saw a little bit more, but no, I was, I was there for one man and one man only, Roger Federer. So that was 2015. That was January, 2015 during the Australian Open. And then 2015 in August, September, I had the opportunity to go to New York and go to the U.S. Open. So, two years knocking out two of the uh, two of the four Grand Slam tennis tournaments was an absolute uh, thrill of mine. Uh, but 2015 in New York, I saw him get some redemption, not on not on Andreas Seppi, uh, but actually having him uh, play John Isner in a fourth round match. And it was it was a tough three sets, but. That was when I actually saw uh, Roger Federer win for the first time. Uh, even though this was definitely the nosebleed section, uh, it was worth it to to be there and experience that. So those are the first two in, in actual uh, live Grand Slam events. In 2018, uh, I saw Roger participate in the Laver Cup, the Ryder Cup of Tennis uh, in Chicago. And he again helped lead Team World to the, to the victory. Uh, that that weekend. So the three times that I've seen him has been an absolute thrill of mine. Uh, but even watching on TV, I, I, I feel that closeness uh, and that special bond between uh, Roger Federer and I. And I really do think the, the, the turning point for me, uh, as there's many turning points, but um, during the, the craze of the Ice Bucket Challenge, the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, I actually did nominate uh, Roger Federer um, to participate in the ALS Bucket Challenge. And let's just say, after I did that, he might have poured, poured a, a bucket of ice on on top of his head. So uh, he didn't specifically call me out uh, by name, but I really do feel that uh, we, we, shared a, we shared a bond there that uh, definitely can't be broken. 
So obviously we, we talked about Roger Federer. You, you have to talk about uh, a couple other uh, tennis greats, and, and this kind of transitions us to the uh, the goat debate of the this podcast. Now, goat conversations are greatest of all time. I've been all the rage, not just this year, but I feel for the past ten years, uh, maybe even for the past. 30, 40, 50 years. People always like to debate, and ultimately, uh, you want to be on the side of the the person that is labeled as the greatest of all time. People want to stake claim that their person is the best that has ever competed in a sport or really in any activity. We love using comparisons and analogies, and the GOAT debate is just a shiny extension of that. Side note, how do you think GOATs actually feel about being brought along in these discussions? Now, goats for many decades were categorized as, as followers, lazy, and, and frankly just misunderstood. They were often mistaken for sheep, given they are in the same animal family of uh, Bovidae and the uh, subfamily of Capernae. I'm, I'm not sure if the, the goat family um, was really happy to be kind of uh, taken from their, their, their current place and, and really brought alongside these discussions, but... Um, it has definitely taken uh, taken ahead of steam, and uh, the original term of goat uh, as greatest of all time is actually credited to none other than Muhammad Ali and his wife Lonnie. And Lonnie actually incorporated the company called Goat Inc. in 1992. Fun fact for you all. So that's your fun goat fact uh, for the day. But when you look at the the, the greatest of all time debate in tennis men's tennis specifically, they're the three three pillars. You've got Roger Federer, you've got Rafael Nadal, and you've got Novak Djokovic. Now, Rafael Nadal from Spain, uh, 34 years of age, so a little bit younger. Uh, both, both guys are a little bit younger than uh, Roger himself, who's now coming up on 39 years of age. Um, so Rafael Nadal, 19 Grand Slam titles. So obviously Roger has 20, but 19 Grand Slam titles for, for Rafa. And the majority of them coming from the French Open. He's won 12 of them. Uh, I'd like to list you off the years just to demonstrate the absolute dominance uh, that he has over this tournament. So it started in 2005, his first tournament. He wins. 2006, he wins. 2007, he wins. 2008, he wins. 2009. No, he does not win. Thank you to Robin Soderling for taking him out in the fourth round because 2009, the only French Open title that Roger Federer won. Back in 2010, he wins. 2011, he wins. 2012, Nadal wins. 13, he wins. 14, he wins. Uh, 15 and 16, we were kind of a down year. Did not uh, did not place. Uh, but 2017, 2018, and 2019 also wins. Uh, so, he has competed uh, at the highest level, and of the 14 times that he has played, um, he's only lost twice. He has only lost twice in Roland Garros. Absolute dominance. And, you know, you can say what you want about Rafael Nadal. He is the king of clay for a reason. But 19 Grand Slam titles. Um, he's, he's won 50, 19 Grand Slam titles, 35 ATP Masters titles, um, and that total of kind of big titles is the same of 54 compared with um, Roger Federer's uh, allotment there. Um, Rafa Nadal has been um, 
definitely the was the number one challenger to to Roger. It, it came. It started in 2005 when uh, Rafa was coming up as a teenager, but the battles between 2005 and, and 2010 um, between the, these two giants was absolute magic. You look at uh, the 2008 um, 2008 Wimbledon final, which is uh, viewed as the greatest match of all time, uh, the five-setter. When darkness was coming on the fortnight uh, in, in Wimbledon, England, uh, Rafa Nadal brought it out 9-7 in the fifth set, uh, beating Roger and really staking his claim as uh, the ultimate challenger to Roger, who had really just been dominating for the past uh, previous years. Wimbledon 2008 as being a changing the guard, moving in the mountains, so to speak. But I want to actually show show you the, the breakdown of their head-to-head record um, because it, it's definitely indicative of different dominances on, on different surfaces. So before 2008 Wimbledon, Federer versus Nadal on a hard court surface, Federer three wins, Nadal two. On clay, Federer one win, Nadal nine wins. Huge delta there, huge delta. And then Federer and Nadal on grass, two wins for Federer, no wins for Nadal. Now post that 2008 Wimbledon, there was a slight change, but not as much as people necessarily alluded to. So on, on hard court, it was eight and seven. Eight wins for Federer, seven for Nadal. On clay, Nadal continued his dominance like he's dominated everyone. Uh, Federer won one more time on clay, and Nadal has won five since. And on grass, 2008 final of Wimbledon, Nadal has won, but Roger got a little bit of revenge in 2019, the semifinal of Wimbledon uh, beating Nadal. As their grass record is 1-1 one one, uh, since 2008. So if you look in, in total uh, during their, their head-to-head career, and Nadal has owned the, the record, has, has owned the head-to-head record, mainly due to the, the absolute dominance on clay. You look at hard courts, Federer is 11, Nadal 9. On grass, Federer has won three, Nadal won. But on clay, the record, 2-14 for Federer. Two wins and 14 losses. So it, it definitely depends on the surface. Um, I think they're more evenly matched on a hard court surface. Uh, you'd have to give the, the edge to grass for, for Federer, but not as much as you would give the edge to clay on for Nadal. Clay, Rafael Nadal on clay is almost untouchable. Grass for, for Federer, he's, he is great. He's one of the best, but he's not necessarily untouchable. So there's definitely a distinction between the services and how each individual is playing. Um, so that 2008 was definitely a time period where I took took notice uh, of Rafa's ability, and uh, he continues to win in the French, but has has demonstrated his ability to win in the Australian Open 2009, um, four U.S. Open titles. Uh, even though his his knees may may give out at at one point, uh, Rafa when you talk about the, the comparisons between Rafa and Roger, you look at Roger, graceful, doesn't exert as much energy per point, and Rafa is the opposite. He's an absolute uh, energizer bunny that will just run around the court, and you think 
He's going to fall off at some point, but his energy level keeps growing and growing and growing uh, throughout the time. And it really has been a testament to, to him through the in- injuries of his knees uh, that he continues to pursue and pursue. And at 34, he's ranked number two in the world and looking pretty good for the French Open uh, come this September uh, to, to matching that his 20th uh, Grand Slam title. So you've got Roger Federer, you've got Rafa Nadal, and then the third member of the the big three and in the the GOAT debate, Novak Djokovic uh, from Serbia, uh, 33, so the youngest of the group, uh, currently the world number one and uh, 17-time Grand Slam title winner. Um, Has actually won more kind of big titles, uh, so the 17 Grand Slams, the five ATP finals, and 34 ATP Masters 1,000 titles. But he's got eight Australian Open titles, five Wimbledon, three uh, U.S. Open, and, and 2016 uh, notched his his French Open title. So Novak Djokovic, the, the youngest of the group, and, and probably the one that's not loved the most um, is is definitely been maligned since uh, he came up. You in the in the early 2000s, you had the the Rafa versus Roger debate, and you were on either side. But ultimately, I think. People were were okay uh, if if you mention one one of the two, uh, but Novak has has blossomed since the the turn of the uh, the twenty tens um, for the past decade. It really has been dominated by by him. Um, yes, he won the f- his first title in two thousand eight, but since twenty eleven, um, he's just been on a, a streak, winning sixteen Grand Slam titles uh, in the past uh, ten years, and really just dominating. Um, throughout some of those ultimate seasons as well um 2015 2016 uh i think probably his his strongest strongest years to date um winning three three titles uh in in a given year absolutely just manhandling his, his opponents and and even playing roger and playing uh rafa he has a, a positive win percentage against both of these these people now uh even though early on in his career he was losing uh he's kind of turned that around and and ultimately if you're talking right now who's playing the best tennis it's novak Djokovic. who's been playing it for the past couple of years it's been novak Djokovic. um but there's there's definitely in in the goat debate there's a little bit of art and there's a little bit of science. And the science and the data may tell you Novak Djokovic. He may end up being the, the one that has the most Grand Slam titles uh, at the end of when all of these three retire. But there's something about the art um, and the personality of, of Novak that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I would definitely be one of them. I've, uh, I've I had the fortune of, of watching Novak Djokovic play uh, in the 2015 U.S. Open from really good seats, and you were able to just witness his ability to return the ball, probably the greatest uh, returner of serve and just rallier that, that we've ever seen, and I marveled at it. But just his, his ability to connect with fans um, has always been an issue, and Novak's mentioned it as well that he wants to be loved and some of his antics don't really allow him to to be loved as much so it's 
it, it's fascinating. It will be fascinating to watch right now. The 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 litmus test of, of being the greatest men's tennis player uh, is the number of Grand Slam titles that you have. Rogers at twenty, Rafa's at nineteen, Novak's at seventeen, and there's not many tournaments for Roger left. Like he's thirty nine, he's going to be forty next year. Definitely outkicked. Uh, the the amount of time that I expected and many people expected him to to be on tour, so you look at the the four or five years that Novak and, and Rafa have left, they probably break that that title. Uh, and Roger could be third in that uh, that list, which is unfathomable to believe, but it likely could be the case. There will forever be this counter in the goat debate that. Nadal wasn't quite present during Federer's reign of total dominance, and therefore Federer had it a little bit easier. He was beating the likes of Leighton Hewitt, Mark Philippoussis, Andy Roddick. Um, however, their vastly different early circumstances have definitely changed, shaped their careers. Nadal was uh, over the horizon while Federer was in the early stages of his peak. What Federer may have lacked early on uh, was that that go-to person. Uh, Nadal always had that chief rival. Right when he was coming on the scene, Federer was there. Uh, so he had a, a truly elite player to to beat, but also uh, build up his, his strengths um, on other surfaces. Nadal had definitely been gearing up to take on Federer for most of his career, like so many of the top players before him. Federer was the pinnacle and, and has been for a number of years. So in this way, there was that target that Nadal had to fight for. While Federer kind of created the top of his game. Federer came right after the end of kind of Pete Sampras's dominance and this lull period of four or five years where, yes, you had the Marat Safins of the world, uh, the Leighton Hewitts of the world, the Andy Roddicks of the world, the David David Nabandians of the world, but none were, were truly monumentally great. Um, they, were, they were great players, but uh, they weren't kind of the, the upper echelon. So Federer was able to kind of like build his own niche and, and kind of set, set the bar where, where he wanted to. Federer has regained the, the coveted world number one spot in 2009 for one last time and, and won seven further Grand Slams after beating Nadal, um, after Nadal beat him in that 2008 uh, Wimbledon final. All, all three of Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic have won at least 10 Grand Slam titles over a six-year period. Grand Slam to Grand Slam. Djokovic achieved it from 2011, from the Australian Open through his fifth title in Australia in 2016. Nadal was from Roland Garros in 2005 through his sixth Roland Garros in 2011. Um, and at his peak, Roger Federer can boast 15 Grand Slam titles within the same span of time dating from his first Wimbledon title in 2003 to his sixth Wimbledon title in 2009. Through this particular set of parameters, Roger Federer was the most dominant player at his peak. However, no player has ever uh, been as dominant as at one tournament or one Grand Slam is Rafa Nadal. The 12 French Open finals is favored to win another one here in September to make it 13. In terms of being an absolute warrior, only losing twice uh, ever in Roland Garros is, is absolutely unheard of. Rafa established his own peak right at the summit of Federer's peak. 
that definitely has to, to, to come into play and come to question. Meanwhile, you have Novak Djokovic here who's just been kind of modeling along and, and now has 17 Grand Slam titles. He's been determined to outperform both, wants to, to be loved, wants to be that, that person um, better than both. And at the end of their career, as I mentioned, he may take the take the title of most Grand Slam titles. Um, he's definitely motivated. Uh, he's in top physical shape. I wouldn't be surprised. But all of these things, you kind of blend them all together. Um, it makes for a great debate. There is no right answer unless you absolutely believe that your answer is always right. So that these three have really owned and dominated for the past 15 years and dominated our, our conversations. And as 2020 hits and we move into 2021, um, there will likely be uh, more new challengers and more new challengers. But uh, for me, the greatest of all time, who has done it with the most class, who has just galvanized a, a sport um, and brought people together, who has been dominant for the longest period of time, and really, who is the person that accepted my ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Boy from Basel, Switzerland, Mr. Roger Federer is your greatest of all time. So there you have it. Roger Federer, philanthropist, tennis great, icon, and at the top of the list for my ultimate restaurant table of four. Even though I don't plan to be eating at a restaurant for a little bit, you get my drift. So thank you again for spending quality time and listening to the this episode of the LAE. The end is in sight for the LAE, but I still have a couple fun episodes still cooking before that final curtain call. So until that time, take care, talk soon, and God bless.